if you can get consistent scores from any judge, no matter where they're sitting, you know your training is really good. Welcome to the Dressage Connection podcast, where we are demystifying dressage training so your connection with your horse can flourish and you can start making sustainable momentum in your riding. I'm your host, Beth Carter, an Australian dressage trainer, coach, and the human behind BC Performance Horses with a passion for making correct dressage training understandable and accessible for every horse and rider. I believe that every horse benefits from dressage training and I believe that it is possible to develop a horse that produces high quality work that scores well while still having an epic connection with your horse. I'm here to help you build foundations that will support you through the levels, own your role as your horse's trainer and fall back in love with riding your horse. So put your foot in the stirrup and let's build that dressage connection. Welcome to a very special episode of the Dressage Connection podcast, where I'll be introducing you to a very special guest who is going to be giving you her perspective on what goes on on the other side of the center line. I am so excited to not only welcome A-level judge Ali O'Neill to the podcast, but I'm so excited to welcome her into my signature online program, The Dressage Dream, where she will be working as a guest coach with the riders inside the program. For those of you who don't know, the Dressage Dream is my signature 12-week online mentorship where you'll be working closely with myself, with support from Ali, mindset coach Tanya Mitten, and exercise physiologist Natasha Gunston to develop your very own personalized framework to scoring 70% in your dressage tests. One of the things that made Ali my top choice as our guest judge for the Dressage Dream is that she shares my philosophy that 70% is an achievable score for non-professional riders on normal horses. She's not only a judge, but she is out there killing it on her own horses and as a coach as well, which I believe brings a whole new depth into what she's able to teach us both in the program and here on this podcast today. So if you're listening to this episode in February 2024, the next round of the Dressage Dream will begin um, on the last week of this month. If you're listening to this podcast at a later date, check the link in the show notes to see when the next round of the program is going ahead and jump on the wait list. Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Dressage Connection podcast. I have followed you on Instagram for quite a few years now, and I just love what you're doing there. How are you doing? I am excellent. It's nice and cool here in Melbourne, so it's not too hot. So I'm loving this weather and looking forward to getting out into it a bit later and working some horses. I can imagine. It's very different weather to what we're experiencing in Queensland at the moment. <laughs> it's hot there. Yeah. <laughs> Humid and raining and it's Yeah, we're not having a good time. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I've just moved back up from the Southern Highlands a few months ago and it's such different weather. Yeah, but, I can imagine. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get into it. You're a rider, you're a coach, and you're a judge. Plus, you have a day job. Talk us through how you got here. Well, interestingly, I was always told when I was a kid, you know, there's no money in horses, Alison. You're, you're really, if you want to afford this sport, you need to get a job that pays well. So after school, I came marketing and found myself in a marketing role, uh, 
which always kind of had an animal theme to it. Like all of the companies that I sort of worked for were always like animal related or had something to do with animals. And a desk job just did not suit me. And at the time I'd been writing for a long time in my, you know, I guess in my life and was writing at FEI level at that stage. So I quit my job. My parents went nuts and I started writing professionally and coaching full-time. So I did that for about two years. And during that time, I probably realized that it wasn't quite what I was wanting either. I knew I definitely didn't want to do it professionally full-time. The long story behind that. But um found myself in a role that was, I guess, well, I've moved into vet pharmaceuticals and I'm really interested in that obviously because it covers both small animals and equine. So my day job actually feels like it's my passion as well. So I don't feel like I'm sort of putting myself on the line, trying to meet unrealistic expectations from people with horses who obviously I, when I was riding full-time, had their best interests in mind. And that wasn't necessarily sort of, you know, aligning with the owner or the rider's expectations. So um, I decided I wanted to have my own horses instead of riding for an owner. That's why I went back to full-time work. And so outside of work, because coaching is kind of my passion I still coach after work and I still coach on weekends. So I kind of, I, I work a lot. I do a lot of work. It's a lot. But that's kind of how I found myself in, in a really beautiful place of being able to combine a career with my passion instead of making my passion a career. It's so backwards, but I hope that makes sense. It's like I, I still, I don't hate writing. I, I feel good. like coaching and riding outside of work I don't hate it because I'm not really overworked in it I can walk away from it and go back to something else that I love as well so I, I really am sitting in a very 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 good space I feel like I'm very very lucky to be in this position yeah that's awesome and it's so good that you've been able to just find that balance of two passions of yours and just be able to do both and that it works really well for you that's fantastic you work very closely with Adam Reese. Tell us how that came to be and what that looks like for you. Well, I've been, I call Adam Reese Yoda. So the reason that I've nicknamed him Yoda is because I always felt like he was the master and I was the apprentice. So a um, little bit of Star Wars theme going on there where I felt like I was always the young Jedi and that I knew nothing and that he was just this wise master Jedi. So I just started calling him Yoda. And that was about 15 years ago. So I met him when he was coaching some other riders at our adjustment. I'd heard about him. Um, I knew that he was a German berater um, and that he was a very gifted rider. And so obviously I was really keen to kind of know more about him. And he was actually training a horse um, that was at the adjustment where I was riding. And it was a pretty ordinary, very average, normal horse, we'll call it. And all of a sudden, I started noticing that horse. I was like, what is going on? How is it trotting like that? Now, I don't remember it moving like that. So I was really inspired and in awe of his talent as a rider. Yeah. And 
very quickly, like I was riding an FEI schoolmaster at the time and very quickly that horse just looked a lot better than mine. So I was like, hey, yeah, okay, okay. So clearly this is something that I'm not able to do and I would really like to learn from him. So mm-hmm. I started training with him um, 15 years ago and I still train with him and I am lucky enough that he actually lives on property with us as well. So while some people might think, oh, you're so lucky that your coach lives on the property with you, I'm like, yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. (laughs) Sometimes I'll be riding at home by myself and I'll just think, oh, I just need like a little bit of time to just, you know, just, just, just wake up a bit and get going and then I see him walking down towards the arena and I'm like, oh, no, not ready. (laughs) So, yes, it's both a blessing and a curse and I'm very, very grateful to have had someone like Adam for so long influencing my riding. So, I'm very, again, very, very lucky. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell us about your horses and what your goals are for them. So, I've got a few now and most of them are young And the reason that they are young is because that's probably for someone like me with my access to finance to be able to purchase these horses. Um, I breed my own because the Boeing horse and I really enjoy kind of, you know, getting to know them from when they're little and knowing everything about them and being a bit of a helicopter parent. So I know that they've had everything that they've needed or, you know, hopefully a successful long-term career soundness and, um, you know, sort of mental capacity-wise as well. Um, so I've got young Volley, who is Volare. He is a four-month-old cult by Vitalis. He's a keeper. I have Cindy, who is Cinderella. She is a Sir Donahall three-year-old. I'm also a keeper. Uh, <laughs> and then I have Dee Dee. Yeah. So then I've got Dee Dee, who is a five-year-old De Niro. And I have my broodmare, which is a Lord Sinclair. She's again in foal to Vitalis. And I have a beautiful, very attractive retired horse called Delarenta, which is Obi. He is a De Niro, but he didn't have a successful ridden career due to a number of injuries and some things that he had going on, which meant an early retirement, which was um, disappointing and sad. But again, I'm really lucky to have the horses at home. So he's a great nanny and still a model. So he gets used and dragged out for photo shoots because he's (laughs) so attractive and loves the camera and loves attention. So um, yeah, so that's my sort of horses that I've got so far. I also have a long-term relationship with my pony who belongs to my best friend. His name is Rose Glen Toy Town. So I've had him for over 10 years that I've been riding him as a full-time training horse. Um, so my goals for them, you know, is always to train them for long-term health and well-being and progress through the levels. I think, you know, the aim is always Grand Prix, but it's such a long road and lots of things can kind of pop up both from a physical and mental perspective for them. You don't really know until you're there, but um, the goal is always to 
train them through train them correctly through the levels for um, long-term health and well-being yeah um and I have loved watching you on Instagram with Obi because I went through something very similar to what you went through with him with my own mare who I've had to retire so seeing someone else going through that um you being you posting that on social media that meant a lot to me because I was able to see my own situation where I didn't feel confident enough to be putting that out there of what was going on seeing you doing that that actually had a huge impact on me so thank you for doing that oh I'm so glad Um, to hear that no that's really nice um yeah so what does a typical day look like for you it's quite intense so (laughs) a typical day for me needs to be flexible and change because it really depends sort of what my plan is for a working week with my you know my vet pharmaceuticals job so usually I try and plan around that I've got some incredible helpers that actually allow me to be able to ride before I need to go to work. So a usual morning for me starts around 5 a.m. So we'll be outside and um, usually I've got one of my amazing helpers starting to muck the boxes and feed and tuck up for me. So um, I'll be on the first horse early. Once I've finished riding, I am able to hand the horse over to my helpers and they will put them away. And then I can go inside, get ready for work and head out to work. And then usually once I've finished, um, I coach like a couple of evenings a week. I try and keep it so that I'm not coaching every single night out after, after work. I try and kind of plan it so that I'm really focused And I think to myself, okay, on Tuesday nights I coach and on Thursday nights I coach and, you know, other evenings I can catch up on, you know, the admin stuff with work and um, judges bookings or clinic bookings or, you know, anything else that that we've got that pops up. So, and a lot pops up like that. It's really, it's a really busy day. And I think probably the challenge is to be flexible, but remember to get everything done as well. So can be tricky and it's always varied, but a lot of fun as well. Awesome. You're very busy. <laughs> yes, um, always. Yeah. So what made you decide to become a judge on top of your huge schedule? Do you know, I was always interested in judging and I guess um, learning more about the sport from a technical perspective because there was terminology that I just did, like basic terminology that when I was getting Um, feedback or reading the comments on my tests that I'd written I didn't understand them Um, and I wanted to know more so um, I spent a lot of time scribing when I was um, you know in the early days and from there I sort of started my early judges education just by becoming I shouldn't say just by becoming a HRC EV judge but you know back then before I started writing professionally and and a long time ago Um, I just started the process where I was like, look, I'd like to learn more and, you know, I can just get involved in the process. And then after that, I moved to EA and started writing at the higher levels. Actually, Adam, that encouraged me to a certain level and you get certain scores in your riding you're actually able to fast track the process so you don't you can choose to fast track to either elementary or medium and I thought go hard or go home go for the medium you can do it and it was actually really 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 difficult and really challenging it was a lot so 
um, I used to get really intimidated by seeing, especially even just in the shadow judging, not even when I was officially judging, I was like, oh, they're coming down the centre line. What do I do? What do I say? What do I do? What do I say? And it, it used to freak me out. Like I'm yeah. not for a second going to sit here think and, and say, I, I was a natural. I totally got it. And like I was so confident all the way through. I was like, whoa, how do they know? How do they come up with the with the comments this quickly? How did they see that? I missed that. I'm so embarrassed. I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm looking at. It was really intimidating. And then having to sit the exams and do all of the shadow judging and then actually speak to the judge educators in the process and answer their questions. And they would ask some pretty gnarly questions. They were like, which horse had the best walk in the class? I'm like, I don't even remember what happened 30 seconds ago. I can't remember that. So it was really full on. And um, so I learned, I've learned a lot and I, but yeah, I guess, in answer to your question, it was because I was really interested in knowing more about the technical side of the sport. Um, I wanted to understand the process of the training and how it was judged, and I wanted to improve my eye so that let's not let's not sort of skate around the issue because I wanted to be a better rider and I wanted to have, I guess, more insights as to how I could improve my riding, my test riding, my training, and my scores. That is such a great reason. Mm. most people don't think to go that way. They're just like, oh, I don't understand this, so I don't understand it. You've gone and proactively gone, no, I want to understand it better. So you found a way to do that. I think that's so awesome. Um, So what's the journey of progressing through the levels of judging looked like for you? What do you have to do at each level um, to kind of move up? And what is the difference between the different levels of judges? So there are different requirements. I think the list is lengthy and I would actually (laughs) have to go onto the website and look what is kind of needed for each level. But usually um, on the EA website, when when you click on the link of how to become a judge, it will give you a step-by-step sort of guideline as to what you have to achieve. So obviously the first thing is you have to be an EA member and then from there, you would start the process where you would reach out to um, the judges committee and express your interest of wanting to become a judge. And they literally will guide you through it. Sometimes they'll pair you with the mentor as well. My mentor was Adam. So it was really easy for me to kind of be sort of um, to become really engrossed in the whole process. Um, And the levels are A-level being able to judge national Grand Prix and below. B-level is small tour and below. C-level is advanced and below. D-level is medium and below. Then you've got your E-levels. I'm pretty sure they can do elementary and below. And there's G-level and H-level, which can do the lower levels, but they have to be judging. They can't judge the class by themselves. So obviously the higher the level that you are, there's certain levels that you can judge on your own, but there is always generally two judges to judge each class. Sometimes there will be situations where they can't get two judges or a judge calls in sick and they might go, oh, we need that A-level judge to judge, you know, the whole elementary or medium class on their own and they can do that because of their level of education. So um, they're not just going to go and, you know, give all eights because they don't have another judge with them. So, um, you know, it's... A little bit um it, it's quite specific it's um the with the upgrade process where if you wanted to upgrade to the next level 
as you get higher through the levels, you actually have to use a certain qualified judge to be able to do your shadow judging with. So when I was moving up to A level to judge the National Grand Prix, I had to do all of my shadow judgings with FEI, I think it's FEI three, four or five star. So I had to use the the big guys and that was very intimidating because when you need to be shadow judging with the judge of that calibre and you need to have a comment in every single box and you've got to give a comment and a mark for the transition to passage, the passage, the turn of the passage onto the next line, the transition from the passage into the piaf, the piaf itself, then the transition from the piaf to the passage, the passage, and then the transition to canter. That happens in about 25 seconds. Yeah, that's a lot. That's fast. <laughs> and you've got to be quick. You've got yeah. to notice everything and be quick. So it's incredibly demanding from a focus but also from a am I meeting the criteria perspective as to why they came to that score so did I miss something what was the priority so with all of this training and going through all of this do you approach your tests any differently now that you've become a judge and how yes very much differently um I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage over riders who are not judges, if I'm being perfectly honest, because I know what I'm looking for. I know exactly how to ride it and I know how to present it for mm-hmm. optimal marks. Yeah. So there are times in my head where it's literally like my judge's voice riding it through me, riding it through for me. So I'll have like a little running commentary of, you know, my judge's hat telling me, how I need to prepare each movement. And then sometimes flicking back to the rider's hat where I'm like, oh, it didn't happen. Um, or, you know, all oh, that, that's going to look good where mm-hmm. I can feel it. I know it's kind of paid off how I've prepared it. And then sometimes there'll be moments where I'll go, oh, that must have looked better than it felt because I'll get a higher mark than I, you know, felt in that moment. So, yeah, yeah there's so many variables, but it definitely yeah. changes the way I approach it. I can think about, um, you know, especially if I've got Adam watching me in the warm-up, it can be one simple comment and I think, yeah, you're right, That's uh, I need a little bit more ground cover or um, I just need a little bit more flow from here to here and that's what I'll think about in the warm-up before I go into the test. So, Awesome. Yeah. So can you give us an idea of how the scoring work, works from a judge's perspective? I feel like a lot of riders don't understand how much thought and training goes into you being able to give each mark. Like as you were talking about before, it's actually quite intimidating and it's you have to go through a lot of training to be able to know what to give, like what marks to give. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it always comes back to the training scales. So it will always start with rhythm, suppleness, contact, and then there are branches of that as well, depending on what you're seeing in that moment. So as a judge, it's really important to be able to sort of develop your eye to be able to come to co- to the correct mark. And that correct mark might look really different from C, H, M, E or B. So that, in my mind, is where if you can get consistent scores from any judge, no matter where they're sitting, you know your training is really good. 
So that's the goal for me. So I know that sometimes I will be writing a test which might not score as high from the judge at E or B, and then that's my responsibility as the rider to be improving my training to make it look as good from the front as as a good from the side as it does from the front as an example so the judge at sea can't see if the gullet's open or if the neck's a bit tight they can't see that from the front that's not their responsibility their responsibility is to judge other areas of the test whereas you've got to be really honest and committed with your training to be able to convince that judge on the side that it looks as good from that angle as it does from the front. So when it comes to a mark, there's going to be different, you know, that the judge at sea, they don't all have to have the same marks. I think we sort of need to get that out of our head that, you know, the ju- the judges had such such a big difference. Sometimes there can be judges that have variations of experience as well. So especially in the lower levels, you might have a higher level judge judging your prelim test along with a judge that is qualified to judge at prelim level, as an example. So the confidence in the judge that's an A-level judge, as an example, to be able to direct that rider for the best progression forward and what they need to do with their comments and their feedback for the rider might be a little bit more in content or a little bit more specific in content than it is for a lower level judge as an example. So there will be times where the scores might vary, where they might be different, but I think that the judges are always referring to the training scale to be able to come to those marks of seven being fairly good, eight being good, 7.5 being not quite good, but a bit better than fairly good as an example. So um, it's really important to sort of look at what those numbers mean in terms of the related word. So satisfactory or marginal or bad or fairly bad or not executed as well. So Mm -hmm. that zero can be in there too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just loved that answer so much. It just, you know, that covered so much. And I think it kind of debunked a lot of things. A lot of writers kind of believe about their scores being varied and everything that, I just loved that answer. So from a judging perspective, what is the most important thing for a horse and rider to get right in a dressage test and that has the biggest impact in their scores? I feel like probably the answer I'm going to give is relevant from both a rider and a judge's perspective. It's something that I aim for as well as wanting to see and that is the develop and maintaining them and improve. That's the idea of good training is to develop a really strong, supple, elastic and symmetrical athlete. And if the pace's quality starts to diminish as you are introducing movements, then there's something missing. And mm-hmm. that, I think, is something that I see a lot where the paces, the, the quality of the paces are not, considered enough where riders just want to ride tricks yeah and they lose the momentum in the paces they lose the purity in the gates they lose the suppleness the swing the elasticity and that's the thing they are the things that are the most important with training where you know we want to keep the horse's body healthy we want to keep their mind healthy we don't want to be riding movements 
that has no quality of the basic paces at all because that's when you can't get really much higher than a 6 or a 6.5. And then people go, oh, well, why are my scores dropping as I move up the levels? Mm-hmm. It's harder to maintain the quality of the paces as you go through the levels yeah. and that's where, you know, the training is the most important, where you've got to keep up with the basics and exactly. make sure that you are really paying attention to the basic paces. Yeah, because if, you know, you can't get the bend in the travers and you can't maintain the bend in the travers, then you can't expect to be able to maintain the quality in the half pass or a pirouette, you know. You've got to, you've got to have that first thing before you move on to the next thing. That's just something so many people overlook, I think. So if mm. they take one thing from this today, like that is something I would like people to take away from this. Yeah, so as a judge, what do you find then the biggest mistake riders make in their tests are? I guess that we kind of just covered that or is there something else that you kind of find that you have to mark them down for? Yeah, always. I feel like they they really have trouble um, keeping enough ground cover in the paces. I feel like they always kind of – I always find that that's a comment that I'm saying, keep ground cover, keep momentum, yeah. keep forward yeah. travel. <laughs> A hundred different ways to say ride into the bridle, ride the yeah. horse forward into the bridle, uphill across the ground with some quality in the paces. Don't flatten yeah. the paces. Ride the horse yeah. up into the bridle and secure that contact and the connection. I think, um, yeah, there's always a lot of sort of slowing down. As soon as the movement starts, they slow down. Yeah. As soon as you see them come into shoulder in through the corner, you're like, oh, here we go. It's just yeah. the trot's just died. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, keeping forward momentum and ground yeah. cover, not letting it fade. And that just comes back to what we were just talking about, about just going back to basics and being able to do it at the simplest level and moving up from there. Um, keeping the quality of those mm-hmm. paces. Yeah. With the rhythm and the regularity being you know it's the first part of the training mm-hmm. scale it sounds mm-hmm. so easy but it's the first thing where the wheels yeah. fall off yeah definitely so inside the dressage dream program where you're going to be a guest coach for me um the aim of the program is to help riders consistently score 70 percent. could you break down what a 70 percent dressage test would kind of look like totally it's achievable I remember hitting my first 70 and the way I would describe it is mistake-free and it was, it just flowed from one movement to the next. Yeah. It it flowed. It wasn't spectacular. I've ridden some spectacular tests and those Mm -hmm. ones have gotten 74, 75, 76. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, the next stage of development. So 70%, my, one of my riders actually hit her first 70 um, just recently and she got so close. She got like she was getting 66s and then she got 60, 68 and then she sort of got like she's getting closer and closer and a 69.6 and then she got a 71. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, how did it feel? And she said, just, just her words, just consistent and mistake-free. Yeah. Yeah. She'd been working on the quality. Yeah. Like the quality was obviously there, but I think the thing that she found tricky was keeping the quality without the mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. Like I always say it's like it's accuracy and just being able to maintain the elements of the training pyramid fairly well because, as you said, seven, it's fairly good. It's only fairly good. It's only good. fairly good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not even a straight good. 
And mm-hmm. yeah, I think when you go back and you look at what those scores actually mean with the word associated with them, that that makes it feel more achievable for people because all you have to do is get a consistent set, get consistent sevens. Exactly. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you can give to someone who's aiming to score 70% for the first time or higher than that in 2024? Well, as we talked about consistency, I think that that is a word that you can bring to your training where you don't deviate from the plan. Consistency and trusting in the process of your training is what's going to give you that consistent feedback from the horse as well. So I think sometimes when we try and chop and change and by nature, I think as the human species, we look for shortcuts. It's actually just maintaining condition. So for example, transitions or the repetition of your aids where you don't deviate from that, they are all going to contribute and how you can consistently ride with your aids to produce and present that test as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We get so stuck in like, this is going so slow. I'm seeing so little progress. I need something to happen now. And I find a lot with my clients, like I'll be working with someone and they'll be like, they'll say to me kind of after the fact, they're like, I was watching, we were kind of going at the start. It wasn't really feeling like it was going anywhere. And then all of a sudden it was like, boom, it was like, we were just working on the foundations, building those foundations. And then all of a sudden it was there. That's the thing about this sport. It's definitely not a sport of instant gratification. I think if you're getting instant gratification all the time. The rewards. Yeah. And if you're getting that instant gratification all the time, there's a good chance you're going to hit a roadblock at some point because you're skipping over things. Definitely. What is the highest individual mark or score that you have ever given? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was over 80. I think I've given, I think I gave an 80 at Dressage Festival last year. Might have been 80 or it might have been 78%. It was pretty high. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty high. And it wasn't a low level. It was a medium. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty cool. It's actually yeah. a nice feeling as a judge to be, you know, to be excited about what you're watching. Yeah. It's really cool. Because yeah. you guys don't want to be giving the low marks. You're not kind of sitting there being like, oh, no. how can I mark this down? No, and I always find myself if I'm giving low marks, I'm like, oh, how do I help? Like I, that's yeah. not actually not my job. But yeah. um, you just think to yourself, how, how can I help? Because yeah. I'm not enjoying giving these scores as much as I'm sure they're not enjoying receiving them. So Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something so important for people to know is that you're not sitting there just being like, how can I do mark this person down? You're actually sitting there being like, no. how can I help you get better marks? Do you have a favourite level to judge and why? Oh, great question. Um. I think medium's always an interesting an interesting level to judge. I do enjoy the levels where there's kind of introductory movements and the tests seem to flow really nicely. So I think advanced can be good in that respect where some of the movements set the horse up for success if they can perform it well, you know, as they're moving into FEI. Um, so I think that's probably their, my favourite test to judge because they are younger horses that might be or, you know, they're, they're almost at the cusp of mm-hmm. their career into FEI. They're learning the more difficult movements and if they can perform them well, they're actually really exciting to watch. You think to yourself, oh, I wonder if this one will make it through to Grand Prix. And, you know, you can definitely see Um, the really high-quality combinations that show promise in those levels which are preparatory for FEI and then 
on from there that um, it's really it's a really exciting mm-hmm. class to judge when there are high quality combinations that come yeah. into them. Awesome. I love that you look at it like that, that it, you know, the levels are preparing you for the next levels because at the end of the day, that's what is happening. It's not just reinventing the wheel every time you move up the level all the levels they're just preparing you for the next level exactly yeah um so is the advanced also your favorite level to ride no now (laughs) now I actually think um I do like I do like the advanced because I find it a bit easy now I know that sounds so (laughs) like it's it sounds um a bit arrogant but now that I've ridden some of the higher levels and I appreciate the challenges especially some of the areas that might be a weakness for a horse where you think to yourself this is all you've got and I have to make the best like this is all I've got in the prep which is a very short prep in some of those higher levels and you think I just have to make I just have to present this movement with what I've got underneath me at this minute at this second actually and the prep time is so much shorter and I really like the advanced when the horse is really secure and confident in the work because you can definitely present the movements for higher marks um, if you can ride them well so I really enjoyed there was actually one advanced test that I rode at a state championship which I won the whole class actually um, and I think one of the judges gave us about maybe 73 or something like that. And I remember having finished the test going, yeah, that was really good. So it was actually so nice to be able to, like I'd been, um, I competed the advanced and the pre-St. George. So I think once you move up to FEI and the horse is becoming more secure at that level, you can definitely appreciate where the preparatory movements from the advanced Uh, supposed to help set you up to be able to successfully achieve better results in FBR. You know, as we know with horses, it's not all lineal. You can, you know, I know that for my second ever attempt at pre-St. George in one weekend, I think I got like a 69.7 or something. I was so close to 70%. And then Mm -hmm. my scores kind of just tapered off a little bit. They were like 66, 68. Then they went 64, 62. And it's like, what's happening (laughs) it's it's not all it's not all lineal you know um if uh, keeping a horse sound fit Mm -hmm. supple and healthy at that Mm -hmm. level is not always easy especially some horses um that level's challenging for them it can take many years to develop that strength whereas some horses are built a little bit more easily for that level and they don't need as much prep time to kind of stay fit strong and supple at that level but Oh, it's hard. It's much harder than than we sort of give credit. So yeah. So how do you personally prepare your own horses for competition? What is the training looking like in the lead up? And are you riding the horses through the tests, or are you just riding parts of the tests? What's it looking like? So it depends on the horse. Yeah. <clears throat> First part depends on the horse. Um, with my current FEI horse, I need a good a good four to six weeks prep. So unfortunately he's not built to easily perform the the movements of a high quality easily. He needs time to be strong. He needs time to be on my aids and confident on my aids. 
And so it takes a lot longer prep. If you said to me, you have to write a test on the weekend, I'd go, oh, I'm not ready. Yeah. And maybe I'm not ready to present that test to the quality that I would like to present it. Yeah. So I could I could ride through a test, no problem. Yeah. But I would be getting off going, didn't enjoy that at all. So that's not sort of for me how I yeah. like to present a test as a yeah. judge under rider. So for me, it's usually about sort of six weeks to prepare for an FEI test. And usually they're in quite a lot of work, you know, full time before that anyway. And I'm always working on suppling and different exercises to keep them fit, keep them strong, understand and feel whether there are areas that need to be addressed, which we find out by doing the exercises. We go, okay, how does he feel Mm -hmm. today? And I like to incorporate a little bit of um, sort of fitness and fun as well. They always get um, a lot of work on different surfaces to kind of keep their joints and ligaments healthy. And I try to sort of break it up when I can with a little bit of sort of cross-training, whether that's poles. It's not always possible because I'm so busy. I'd love to go and do some more gymnastic jumping and stuff like that, but sometimes time's not always on my side. But in terms of actually the week before the test, usually I'm starting to put pieces of the test together. So I like to be able to ride through the test maybe once or twice yeah. um, in the week of the, of the, of the competition. Yeah. Awesome. What about on the day of the competition? How are you preparing your horses for their tests in the warm-up? What are you thinking about when you're going down the centre line? Usually I try and sort of look for the quality of the paces being the priority. Yeah. So I try not to ride too many movements in the warm-up. Usually it's just about sort of preparing their body for the test. So we've usually got a lot of prep in that week before. So I don't really feel like I've got to really train in the warm-up. It's literally just warming up their body to prepare their body for the movements that they need to perform in that test. Yeah. So whether or not that might be if I notice, oh, there's still that tiny little bit of stiffness to the left that I've experienced all week, so, you know, that's definitely a reflection of how I would prepare them for the warm-up. If I know all this week this has been challenging, I'll just, I'm not going to go in there and dig myself a big hole mm. so that I have a big blow-up in the test. I'm just going to sort of lightly address it, just remind them, hey, if you wouldn't mind just seeing if you can stay supple just a bit more there, I'll try and make it a little bit looser. And then, you know, sort of giving them that feeling of being a little bit empowered where I try and keep it nice and bright and happy, where they're energetic and responding to my aids, where I feel like I'm going to be able to execute that test with minimal aids, looking like it's easy as. So that's what I'm thinking when I get onto the centre line. It's like this is an opportunity just you've you've done all the work, just drive, just drive. Yeah, and because you've done all of that background work before the competition on the day, it's just you can just go there and do it. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. What's your best advice for memorising a dressage test? See, I'm very patterns-oriented. Um, so for me, I like to sort of think about, and I know it's not the case with every test. I know some of them are 
especially the HRCRV ones, I'm like, why did they put that there? That's so weird to put that movement there after that movement. Um, but with the EA test, I like the usually a mirror image. Yeah. So you'll make a turn a certain amount of, you know, like in prelim, it's a 20-metre circle. In novice, it's a 15-metre circle. Mm-hmm. And I just think to myself, where does it start? Where does it finish? What next? So mm-hmm. I know it's usually, like as an example, let's say a medium test, it's usually shoulder in, half 10-metre circle left or right, half 10-metre circle left half pass change yeah. direction do the same thing the other way yeah so if i know what the sequence of the movements are to begin with i know they start and they all sort of follow a pattern yeah. and then you change direction and do it the other way yeah always remember to halt if there's a halt and rein back in that test because that's what people forget or the give retake yeah, or the, the stretchy circles advanced as an example <laughs> oh exactly or sometimes people get lost in the yeah. free walk they run oh, to no. the wrong markers so yeah, it's just really, it's a really good idea to, um, you know, it might even be while you're driving to the test, if you're not, the, if you're driving to the comp, if you're not the driver, you've got someone else driving, just reread it again, visualize, you can um, have a piece of paper in front of you and you can just use your finger to write around yeah. um, and say the words out loud in your head as well. So yeah. I'll say, um, as an example, with the advanced, I think it was like, across the, like I always think the last extended trots across the diagonal, but in this advanced it was M to F, so straight ahead. And so I was like, don't turn on the diagonal because you're going straight and extended trot. So it's just like a bit of a yeah. vocal reminder in my head so that when I'm actually in the ring, I'm like, oh, it's not the diagonal, it's straight. Yeah. So um, that I remember where I'm going and, yeah, you do get lost sometimes, but yeah. I don't often. <laughs> no, I, I love the pattern thing. That's what I do as well. I'm very pattern orientated mm. as well. And I think once you understand how the tests work and what's in the test, then it's a lot easier. Exactly. What do you do if things don't go to plan in the competition arena? If you go in there and it all just falls apart? <laughs> I usually laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. I'm always laughing, yeah, because I, um, I remember, of course, when I'm riding in front of the international judges, I'm always thinking to myself, you know, these are my judge, judging colleagues and, and some of them don't ride anymore and I'm still a rider and I want to impress them. I want to show them that, you know, yes, I'm a judge, but I can ride as well and I can do it like we want to see it on my tiny little pony that's built like a wheelbarrow. So it. I'll never forget I was preparing for the quarter canter pirouette in front of um, one of our FEI five-star Olympic judges and I was so excited to ride in front of her. And... I started preparing for the half pirouette left and he just sort of did this, did this tiny little check in the contact and I was like, what was that? Why is he checking me? I'm like, no, no, just sit here. You'll be fine. And I've gone to sitting back and prepare and he stopped. Oh, no. He just went canter and he just stopped and just went trot, 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 like tiny little PR steps to the left. And then I was like, oh, no, <laughs> and he cantered <laughs> off. I went, oh, no. <gasps> and that was a coefficient, right? So that was, yeah. I knew my, my judge's head went like, as soon as I, as soon as it happened, I was in the moment and I had this word in my head that's gone, that's a one. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> so I knew what it was. I knew what it was. <laughs> sure enough on my test one, I'm like, oh, well, you were right. But um, I kind of had to laugh about it and yeah. move on. Yeah. Like if that's done, that moment's gone, move yeah. on. You've still got, you've still got the rest of the test to go. So yeah. 
that's what I kind of think to myself in the moment of a test. Don't get caught up in the movement. Yeah. Try and save the rest of it to prepare for the next movement. Yeah, because it's only one movement. Exactly. It sucks if it's a coefficient. Yeah. It sucks if you get a one. But (laughs) laugh about it. Laugh about it. It's, you know, the universe will not end because you got a one in coefficient with a canter pirouette. It's we're not, riding it's okay. living, we're riding living breathing animals things go wrong oh, sometimes no. it doesn't always go to plan no it does not <laughs> even with the best preparation it does yeah. not mm-hmm. curveballs <laughs> they can happen a lot with horses mm, all the time mm, yeah so that kind of wraps up my bigger questions that i have for you i want to ask you some rapid fire questions just answer them with the first thing that comes to your mind okay. riding or coaching Riding. Mares, geldings, or stallions? Mares. Chocolate or lollies? Both. Riding indoor or outside? Outside. Training or competing? Training. Summer or winter? Winter. Horses with bling or no bling? I do like bling. Mornings or evenings? Mornings. Favourite saddle? Fairfax Rebecca. Favourite riding pants? Oh, that's a hard one. Come on, Ellie, go, go. I like my new Valor breeches, actually. Nice. I've seen them. Very comfy. Yeah, cool. Very comfy. I have to get some. Very comfy. Um, Favourite horse to ride? Oh, I'm going to say DD. Favorite test very to nice ride. Horse. Oh, favorite test. The Inter One. Favorite boot brand. Cavallo. Favorite stirrups. A Cavallo. Uh, favorite helmet. I do like my casco helmet. Who inspires you as a rider? I was actually thinking about this one. Do you know what? I don't here is my comment about this question because I am really easily inspired by and have a lot of respect for a rider who can really produce a very average horse, just a normal horse. I love I that am, answer. I am so inspired by those riders. I just think to myself, you are you are an artist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that, I have that to agree that inspires that. me. Yeah. I think that's my favorite answer anyone's ever given me to that question, actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a person. It's a yeah. it's it's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. If you could train with one person in the world, who would it be? You know, apart from Yoda. And the reason that I say Yoda is because I've trained with him for so long. And I've still got so much to learn. Not yeah. for a second am I ever thinking to myself, oh, I should go to someone else because, mm. you know, like, oh, he's just unbelievable. But if you were to say you can take Yoda with you and go and train with someone, I think that I think Carl Hester's someone that you would, you know, love, love to ride under. That would yeah. be pretty unbelievable. I'd really yeah. enjoy that. That'd be cool. Yeah. As a trainer, what is something you wish everyone would do with their horses? I wish that they would, oh, that's a good question too, regularly visit the basics 
and strive for excellence in producing quality in the basic paces. That would spark so much joy in my day if, you know, people could go, look what I've done to the trot or look how I've improved this canter quality. So for me, that would be like, I don't want to see your half pass if it's still the same canter that you were doing in novice. Yeah. Like, show me what you've built. So sh- show me what, what you've, yeah, sh- show me that. That would be that would be inspiring for me as well, what I wish yeah. people would yeah. do. Yeah, that's another really good answer. I'll what call if, them today. I know. You're just <laughs> blowing me away. <laughs> you're like inside my brain. I love it. Um, if you could change one thing to make the dressage world a better place for the horses, what would you change? Um, that's another outstanding question. Um, I'm not actually sure because I feel like there's lots of different things that could be improved or better, but I'm also sort of reluctant to pass judgment on how other people manage their horses when you don't know that horse individually. Like I know that everyone does the best that they can with the information and I guess the tools Mm -hmm. and the experience and the knowledge that they've got. Um, But what I wish for, I guess, for the horses is that they are all actually, yeah, no, this is uh, talking about great answers. I feel like this is an excellent one that each horse is given the opportunity to really flourish as an individual for their individual needs. Because I think sometimes, you know, that's not always top of mind for, you know, I guess the rider's goals. We need to keep in mind that what we think is a goal might not necessarily be achievable in a certain time frame for a horse. So maybe just that some individual and specific needs or, yeah, so yeah. I feel like I, I feel like I can get there better and I can get there quicker with this answer. But I feel like if each individual horse's needs were catered for yeah. to help them flourish with whatever is within them of being capable to achieve. Yeah. And knowing that sometimes what we wish for them to be able to achieve might not necessarily be so. It might not be a possibility. And yeah. to accept that and maybe yeah you know, not push or just give a bit more time yeah. or, yeah, little yeah. things like that. I think that would be, that would, you know, that sounds like a perfect world, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that sounds like the perfect world where every horse is able to just reach their full potential. I love that. If you could give your younger self one mm. piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, another great one. I would say you're on the right path. You don't need to listen to your dad. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, you know, as, you know, when you're younger, we are sort of heavily influenced by our parents' goals and dreams for what we could achieve. And yeah. so I think my advice to myself would be, Keep following your dreams, continue your education because knowledge is power and it definitely puts you in a position where you can, I guess, add value to other people and you can offer knowledge and experience as time goes by that can help others in their own journey and their own learning as well. So 
yeah, so I think my advice to myself would be, yeah, continue to develop your knowledge and understanding. Always continue your education. You will never know everything. There's so much to learn and keep an open mind and try not to pass judgment on others so quickly. Yeah. Would be my advice. That's a really Got good there in the end. again. Got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really relatable as well. I think a lot of people kind yeah. of feel that pressure. If you could be known for one thing, what would it be? What I spoke about before, that even on normal horses, I was able to bring out the best in them from really good riding and training and development. I think that's, I would love that. I would yeah. love that if people saw me in a competition list on a draw that they go, it mm. won't matter what Ali's on. It's going to be great. It won't even matter if it's just a normal horse. She will have trained it so well. She's going to be she's going to be a test to watch. And that's, mm. you know, that's actually a dream for me. That's what yeah. inspires me to be better. I just mm. think, you know, let, let's, um, yeah, that's how I'd like to be known. Won't matter what, what you're on. You're going to have trained it well. I love that. And I keep saying that, <laughs> but I just, yeah, <laughs> I feel exactly the same way about that. That's an amazing answer again. Before we finish up, I opened up the platform to my followers who had a couple of great questions that they wanted me to ask you. So do you mind answering those? Yeah, of course. Brittany asked, what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone who has never competed before? So any encouragement or any goals to set? Definitely. Preparation is the key. So if you break it up into small steps of the whole road to that competition, it actually won't be such a big deal. So if I guess you start by riding through some tests with your coach, if you then go and have an experience off property, so you again have an external environment that's not your normal home training environment. And then there's definitely some protocol days that clubs and different sort of associations run, make it low key, go and have fun, get some feedback, little things like that where you're not sort of throwing yourself in the deep end. You're literally doing the, I guess, you've done all of the work and then you just get to go and enjoy the moment. So I think the more you can prepare, the easier it is to just enjoy that moment of being at a competition and it's not so daunting. Yeah, I agree. Jelana asked, what is the biggest tip for translating the training at home into the competition arena so that she can focus on riding her horse in the test rather than focusing on riding the movements? I think definitely discipline at home is going to help with that because let's face it, some of the things that I see in a test, you can tell happens at home. Mm -hmm. As an example, horses flexed to the outside in corners, that they're Mm -hmm. not really attentive to the rider's inside leg, that they're not really, like the little things, be really disciplined at home really disciplined at riding the transitions, really disciplined at using your corners in preparation for the movements mm-hmm. because the movements are actually really easy. So, you know, um, how disciplined you are at home with looking for the quality and execution of your basic 
training is going to mean that the actual test and translating, like it should be the same at a competition as it is at home. And sometimes I'll almost ride a little bit with my with not as much gas, I'll say. Like I, I don't push as hard in the warm-up at a competition because I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to ride hard at home so that if there is any tension at the comp, I can just be like, it's, it's all right. I can use that time for confidence building instead of you must do it like this. Yeah, It's a little bit easier to kind of go, it's all right, you know this, remember? Like yeah. let's just do what we do at home. Like practice some of the exercises that you do at home in the warm-up to help you get that same feeling for the test. Yeah. Awesome. Emily asked a deep one, which is kind of a big discussion in the dressage world right now. What I already is know your... where you're going with this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, there's only one way I can go with this one. Yeah, go. What is your view on how horses that aren't truly working through the connection and showing clear mistakes in the rhythm how are they scoring the top marks at the big shows? This is a hard one because I know what you're referring to. I know and the concerns. And probably my first comment would be it's not getting a 10. That would be my first comment. Yeah. There's not 10s across the board. Um, yeah. My second comment would be that I know that when you asked me mares, geldings or stallions, there was a huge reason why I said mares. Mm -hmm. Stallions would be my third choice yeah, because um, they can be incredibly challenging to ride and keep focus and attention, mm -hmm. especially horses confirmation. Every horse differs and varies. The feeling through to the bit is really different for each individual horse and rider combination. Adding the element of extreme atmosphere mm -hmm. can absolutely change how that horse feels underneath you. I think every horse has a default go-to as an evasion. Mm -hmm. That can either be coming against the hand, coming behind the bit. It can be hollowing. It can. There are so many evasions which you will absolutely experience as you embark on your journey through the levels. That's if you get through the levels. Mm -hmm. And if you are fortunate enough to feel the, I guess, development of a horse through the levels, you will feel all of the same little resistances that that horse had as a young horse coming back. They pop up. They pop yeah. back up. It's like, oh, <laughs> where's that? <laughs> so all of these things, like every horse has a tendency. It will be a tendency to come shorter in the neck. It will be a tendency to hollow. There are tendencies of evasion in everything. And I know that there is such a huge focus on behind the vertical tension shown in the mouth. Some horses, even in the paddock, will show a tendency to grab things with their mouth. Mm. I think it has a lot to do with their personality, their character and their nature, a little bit sort of like people. They all have tendencies and, and characteristics which will absolutely show up in the way they perform when they are ridden. Um, my only experience with riding horses in an, in an atmosphere was actually in which when I experienced 
um, something that was totally out of my control and I went, oh, I've got nothing here. I've got mm. absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, was in a champion of champions situation um, mm. in the indoor at Dressage with the Stars. So I won the four-year-old class, mm. lost his mind, yeah. lost his mind. And it was a young horse. There was a lot of clapping. And that was what, maybe 2,000, like maybe not even 2,000 people, maybe 1,000 people. Mm. That wasn't a jam-packed mm-hmm. mm-hmm. situation. You know, I've ridden yeah. FEI tests where I've had some, like a dog fight break mm-hmm. out. That was just a, two dogs just yeah. barking and carrying on on a deck. Lost its mind. Yeah, That wasn't a stadium with a breeding stallion that might have been a bit nervous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of think to yourself, what is the answer? Do mm-hmm. we keep... You know, do we go? Oh, my horse doesn't feel good today. Uh, I won't. I won't do the test because it's not perfect. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't really have the answers. Yeah. Um. I'm not really sure of how I would score those combinations in that moment if I was there in person. I know yeah. that in person, it doesn't always look the same as it does on the screen and in videos. Yeah. I know that as fact. Because there have been times where I've been there in person and I've had people messaging me going, what, how come I got that score? And I'm like, oh, no way. It looked unbelievable in person. Like I thought yeah. the score was great. Um, and also sometimes keeping in mind that there is also spectator judging too. Mm. So although the judges are giving high scores, the general public are also able to judge. Mm. And those scores are not always different. So. Yeah. I think it's really easy to watch and replay and replay and replay Mm. and tiny little nitpick on every single nanosecond, but that's not real time. That's not real life. That's not in the moment. And, you know, as I said, these judges can only judge from their spot on that arena. They don't have 360-degree view on a camera. Yeah. They don't have split-second screen grabs of what's happening in that moment. They can only judge in real time. Yeah. So I I can understand I can understand the question. I understand the comments. I I don't really feel like I have, you know, an answer, but maybe some yeah. insights as yeah. to how it can be so much more than what we label it to be. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think people can be very, very quick to go on a witch hunt with the writers, especially. And just, you know, without taking what you just said into consideration, I think what you just said was brilliant. To anyone listening to this, that can give them a whole new perspective on not just this event, but all the other events where people are sitting there on social media with their prelim horse that they're getting 60% on judging what's going on at the World Cup. And I think, you know, once you, I think the people who, are doing the least amount with their horses generally have the biggest voice. I'm not Definitely. saying that to be derogatory whatsoever, mm. but I feel like the more time you spend with mm-hmm. your own horses, with their training, and mm-hmm. I think some people who have very loud voices are not even training for dressage. They, yeah, no. They're, they're yeah. more like mm-hmm. riding for fun or mm-hmm. they yeah. are riding with neck ropes which I love actually I plan to do some of that myself in the future so I'm not saying that it's 
not as important. I'm not saying that welfare and happiness of horses are not important, but what I am saying is that I think only when you have embarked on trying to train your horse in a really correct way will you experience for yourself just how challenging it can be and that Mm -hmm. it's not lineal, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. your amazing horse that you've had for five years and you thought that you trained it correctly, you actually take Mm -hmm. it somewhere away from home and you go, oh, my God, nothing works. Yeah, That's when you can actually have some empathy for others because when you experience it for yourself, Mm -hmm. will Mm -hmm. you understand that, oh, my God, my horse totally came behind the bit. Oh, it was so embarrassing. It dropped they dropped the contact, contact and it left me. It's never done that to me before. That's that's never happened in our relationship. Yeah. How could that possibly have happened? Mm. It happens. Yeah, um, it does. And, you know, of course we all want this magic wand that says, you know, actually that wasn't my best half pass and it all went wrong. Could I write it again? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Hang on, first pause so I can rewrite that movement for you because that just sucked and yeah. I liked it. I can do it better. But that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, no. Thank you so much for just answering that question because I think it's something on a lot of people's minds right now and I love how diplomatically you just answered that. I'm glad. I'm sure there'd be lots of people that could sort of, you know, um, argue a response, but it's Mm. not really necessary. That's just my thoughts. It's not to argue. It's just to, you know. Yeah, and it's horses are horses and as you said, until you've experienced it just completely falling apart in the competition arena or something, you don't really understand it. I had an experience where I was riding a stallion at the CDI and I had had a very short prep time with riding this horse and the training was going really well. The warm-up went super. We got on the centre line and he just grabbed the bit and ran the whole way through the test. (laughs) So like it happens, you know, it it happens. It you know it it happens. That's all I can say. It does. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so for anyone looking for you online, where can they find you, and how can they work with you outside of the dressage dream, of course? So I've got my Instagram which is Ali O'Neill Dressage. I've also got a Facebook page, which I'm probably not as active on. Um, But, yeah, you can contact me through there. Awesome. Thank you. I'll link that in the show notes too so that people can just click on it and find you. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have had such a great time chatting to you. I've, As I've said multiple times, I feel like you think about things in a very similar way to, I, um, to what I do. So, I'm so looking forward to having you inside the dressage stream because I just think that this is such a cohesive fit for us. Um, Yeah, so everyone listening to this, make sure you go and follow Ali on all her socials. And if you're ready to jump in and work with us and mindset coach Tanya Mitten and exercise physiologist Natasha Gunston to start developing your 70% framework, Make sure you check out the dressage stream and I'll leave all the links in the show notes for you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Dressage Connection podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and leave a rating, review or share a screenshot of this episode to your stories to help more people find their dressage connection. You can always reach out to me on Instagram with any questions about anything we've covered on the podcast 
your own writing journey or just to say hi at bc.performancehorses. You can also get the latest info about how you can work with me on my website, bcperformancehorses.com. I can't wait to hang out with you in the next episode, but in the meantime, go on and build that beautiful dressage connection.